Numbers 10, verses 29 through 32, we will see here as we continue at the end of chapter 10 here, that now Moses said to Hobab, the son of Roel, which is also his name is referenced as Jethro, if you remember, he's the Mennonite, the Moses' father-in-law. And we are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you, come with us, and we will treat you well, for the Lord has promised good things to Israel." And he said to him, I will not go, but I will depart to my own land and to my own relatives. So Moses said, please do not leave. Inasmuch as you know how we are to camp in the wilderness, and you can be our eyes. And it shall be, if you go with us, indeed, it shall be that whatever good the Lord will do to us, the same we will do to you. So here at the end of uh, the chapter 10 there, we see that they're on that three-day journey into, as we'll see in the next verses, a three-day journey. And he recognizes, Moses recognizes, that even though God is by cloud and by fire, the cloud's moving as God's guiding them to tell them to when to go and when to stay in camp, He recognizes that Moses recognizes he can't do this on his own, that God uses godly people, godly men to help and assist this leader, Moses, in leading the people across the land. And Hobab, which is his brother-in-law, is very important in this role because he understands, it looks like, in the scripture here, he says, you know how, come with us, because you you know what's going on here. You you know how to set a place and go through this whole camping situation situation there in verse 31 you know how we are to camp in the wilderness and your eyes can see things and understands what's going on in the wilderness as we're going across it would be very helpful to me as a leader leading God's people and though Israel was guided by God God often arranges it so his help comes to us partially through people he has ordained or equipped to help that leader And so he's now pleading, he's kind of petitioning, he's not just taking a simple no from Hobab, he's he's actually saying, he's not taking the no, he's like, wait, wait, I hear you saying no, but... Let me tell you, let me encourage you here. There's some, there's some benefits here because God is going to bless his people and you're going to be blessed along with us. We'll make sure you get blessed too from all what God's going to do. So he's kind of letting them know, come along, join in with God's fellowship here and God's people and you're going to be blessed as well. And he continued there, and he says so in verse 33. So they departed from the mountain of the, of the Lord on a journey of three days. And the Ark of the Covenant and the Lord went before them for the three days journey to search out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was above them by day, and when they went out from the camp, so it was whenever the ark set out, that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel." So here at the end of chapter 10 here, uh, finishing here in chapter 10, we see that as we, they begin the journey to the promised land, their first journey that guided by God is going to last for about three days. 
and God's guidance and presence will be right there with them. And, and they're not by themselves in this journey. God is going about them they're to follow this cloud no matter where God led them. They were to just follow God. They weren't to tell the cloud what to do, tell what God what to do. They were to just follow. And if they were to camp in a rough place, they did it. If they were told to go on from, from a comfortable place and go to a comfortable place, they did it. If they were allowed themselves to be guided by God and not by their own desire and comfort and ease, they were just to be a surrendered life to God and go wherever God guided them to be. And when it happened, when God decided to move, the people then had that order, as we know, very orderly. When moved in a certain sequence, they were to rise up, O Lord. This is a prayer of Moses here. Rise up, O Lord. Let your enemies be scattered. The first thing they said was just like, okay, Lord, we're on our move. The enemies are going to watch us start moving. They're going to start trying to attack us. Can you just scatter them, please? As I was studying this, I reminded myself, every time I get in the car and I'm about to do a travel, the first thing that comes out of my mouth is, God, can you make sure the deer just go away? Get, a, get them, take them away. Don't let them scatter. Don't let them even come near me as we're traveling because that's, it's, it's the enemy, right? So the, this, this prayer from Moses, like this idea was just so simple. God, go before us and take care of our enemies. It's too dangerous ahead of us unless you do that protection, unless you're doing the guidance, we want you to do it. It's, it what, what, a, what a fitting prayer it is for us even as believers. That we would, we would come and just worship God and, and pray. God has these things before us and places us to, and he places us in a place to lead us Shouldn't we pray that same prayer, Lord? If you're taking us there, just provide a way and a guidance and protection as we go to where you're telling us to go. But he also prayed there at the very end of 10, return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. It was a prayer that Moses said, okay, God, you're stopping here. Now we just need you to put a protection, hover a protection over all of the thousands, all of your people, because we're stopping. It means this is where we're going to camp. And so Moses would pray, here we are going to camp, Lord. We're going to stay. You're going to be with us as we do this. And, um, and sometimes God sometimes tells us to move on. But sometimes he tells us to camp out. This is where I'm going to have you for a season. Either is fine when we are guided by his presence, by his word, not only by our own thinking and feelings, because that is always many times will mislead us. I just feel like I need you to have something different. Go somewhere different. And you'll take off and you think that it's always going to be better somewhere else. The grass is always greener over there. It's always a better place over there. And I can't handle the environment. There's always these feelings and things when God's not in it. So why would you go anywhere else, do anything else, if God's not in it? Just stay where he has you until he says it's time to move. Then you are, but then sometimes you get so comfortable. It's like, I'm not leaving. I'm very comfortable right here. And God said, no, I'm moving you. And it, it, don't be so stubborn. Just go when God's moving and move. Which now brings us here to Numbers chapter 11. And the main topic here in chapter 11 is all about the complaining heart. 
We're going to see that the Israelites are going to be complaining about against Moses and against God, and Moses is going to be complaining against God, and we're going to see this 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 heart it settles where it's just a a complaining heart, and the consequences that will come about that when people are like they are when it comes to that. And that says here in Numbers chapter eleven verse one, follow along here it says now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it. <laughs> he hears our complaints. And his anger was aroused, so the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the some in the outer skirts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. So he called the name of the place as Tabirah, because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. So we see here that Israel, having been ordained, I should say ordered, and organized, and cleansed, and separated for God, uh, blessed, they were taught how to give, they were reminded of God's deliverance, reminded daily of God's presence, given tools in advance to prepare them to be able to go to the promised land, have a great future ahead of them with God. But they turn around and they start complaining. (laughs) The people complained of what they had and where their present situation is. Nothing new under the sun. Here they are about to journey into the three days and they were already complaining of all the things that they're going to be complaining about here. We're not sure exactly what they were complaining about at this moment in time, but the people were complaining because they had a complaining heart. How can it be that a nation so blessed can still complain? People do. Because their hearts are not right. God had done so much in and for Israel, yet they still murmured against God. Yes, their circumstances weren't easy. Yes, there was change and and they were going to be finally journeying for the first time after a year. They're going to be going across the desert there to the promised land. But they're going to the promised land. It didn't matter because it wasn't easy. And, it's, and, and what happens, it stirred up their complaining hearts, their sinful hearts, and it started complaining against God and wiping out the spirit of gratitude in their hearts and filling it with the heart of complaining. And that was heard by the Lord, and it displeased him. It did not please the Lord when you have a complaining heart. And this was a simple case of cause and effect. Our complaining hearts displease God because it shows so little of gratitude that we have in our life of what God has provided for us and what has done in the past and the faith of what He is currently doing right now and in the future in our lives. And when you take your gratitude off and worshiping of God and what He is and who He is, what He's done and going to do in your life as He's promised in the, in the Word of God, you can then move from a gratitude heart to the complaining heart. We aren't even told exactly what they were complaining about, but perhaps it was because of their complaining is just in their general dissatisfaction or discontentment of their situation in life at the time. I just feel like complaining because I have just, I'm going to find something to complain about. Complaining and 
Not for any one great reason, but because that is what was in their heart at the time. But notice here who was complaining. It was those complaining, some of them were consumed because they were on the outskirts of the camp. They're just peripherally, they're part of Israel, they're part of the, the family, they're part of the, 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 the God's people, but they're always living on the outskirts. Not in the middle, not, not dwelling within the middle, but living on the outskirts, just on the fringe. To be able to identify themselves as someone else. Are you part of this? You part of this? this? Oh, oh, yeah, we're right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's those attitude and that mindset of that outer skirt of the camp people. These people stayed on the outskirts just enough to identify with God's people, but they weren't really committed to be part of the people. They weren't close to God's people. They weren't intermingling with the God's people. They were just staying on the outskirts of people just so that they can have some kind of peripheral identification with them. I find when you just stay just at arm's length away, just showing up once in a while just to identify yourself as a child of God, man, I mean, you call myself a Christian, I think. They're the ones you're going to find. You'll find yourself more of a complaining heart versus a gratitude heart. And we see that God's display, dis, uh, displeasure or displeased as he was about these individuals. The fire of the Lord burned them. God brought down the, the fireman down on these people for complaining against him. Israel had valued God's fire by night because it not only provided probably light and warmth, but also the fire protected any enemy coming even close to the camp. There was a wall that protected them, and they loved God's fire when it was for their benefit. It was a symbol of his presence at night. But now that same fire, the fire in the presence of God, becomes somewhat of a two-edged sword for them. Because the presence of God was there to deal with sin in their heart as well as to comfort Israel. And what happened? They had no relationship. They didn't feel confident. They didn't feel like they could come to God and plead, Go, God, forgive us of our sin, of our complaining heart. No, what did they do? Moses, help. You know, they're going to Moses because they knew they couldn't come into God's presence. Moses, you speak to them. You're right with God. Please intercede for me somehow. I need, a, I need mercy here. And sure enough, when they come to Moses, Moses cried out, prayed to the Lord. The fire then was quenched. Moses intercedes for God's people, the people he was leading. And the fire is quenched. And the place was named Tabura, which just means burning. It was a reminder of God's just dealing with the complaining heart of a person. It reminds us in James chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Even so, the tongue is a little member and a boast great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, 
a world of iniquity. This tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire by hell. How quickly a complaining heart will eventually come off the tongue of a complaining tongue and it would be like a fire that will just start a fire in the situation you find yourself in. That's why we must be very careful and allow not to be emotionally driven in this complaining a wrong heart and be more of a grateful heart. Because this complaining heart causes damage not only to God's reputation because you represent God as a child of God, but it also it absolutely ruins our witness uh, for the Lord to the people around you because you just blew it but with a tongue what you say and how you complain and, and murmur and complain about the things going on in your life. So what's the lesson learned here on that? Don't be a complainer. <laughs> and in this situation, don't stand very long with another complainer because you might get caught up in, a, in that little torch moment uh, of, uh, of, of complaining. Now we move on to verse 4. Now the mixed multitude is going to complain here. Now the mixed multitude were, who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers and ooh, the melons, the leeks, the onions and the garlic. Oh, you just, you know, Cook that up. Oh, it was so it was so good. Put it over a little fish. Oh, wasn't it great back there in Egypt in those days? Oh, we lived the light, didn't we? Verse 6. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Now the manna was like uh, coriander, uh, coriander seed and its color like the color of delium. And the people went about and gathered it and ground it on millstones and beat it in the, in the mortar. Cooked it in pans and made cakes of it. And its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. And when the dew fell on the camp in the night, the manna fell on it. So when you take a look at the scripture here, this mixed multitude reminds you when they came out of Egypt, it wasn't just the Israelites that came out of Egypt and went across and experienced all the things that God did. Parting through the Red Sea, battling the enemies, providing water from a rock, providing all the necessary resources and food and all the provisions for a whole year. For over two million people. The mixed multitudes were there because they knew they were something they watched and seen while in Egypt at how these ten plagues were happening and the people of Israel were not being touched. If I was you, I'd be running into their households too, wouldn't you? I'd be going to the, where the people are and, and hanging out with them because God's protecting them. The, my people in Egypt or maybe other foreigners who were in Egypt at the time, they were going through some difficult times and they found themselves that night, the night of Passover, they found themselves protected in the house that was covered by the blood. And those people are the ones that came out with 
the Israelites. It's this multitude now is starting to complain. And they're remembering, and they're going back and remembering what the life was like back in Egypt, back in slavery, back in this really terrible times. They were slaves more than likely, working right alongside the Israelites. And they were experiencing seeing the hardships. And now they're being free, but now they forget all the things that happened back in Egypt. And now they're pondering on just selective memory, selective things in their past that seemed so good and it was really tasty and seemed to have all, all the food you want. But what they're doing is these mixed multitude, the ones who probably didn't want anything to do with the God of Israel, not all had this genuine, real relationship with God. And this is true of the visible church as well today. Which Jesus said would contain good and bad in the body until the final harvest. And we see that in Matthew 13 verses 24 through 30 and verse uh, 26 through 43. And these mixed multitude was among the Israelites. And they had this intense craving the Hebrew word here is Hava. It's also used in passages like Genesis 3.6 and 1 Samuel 2.16 or in Job 33.20, Psalm 10.3. For the strong desire for something of the flesh to please them. Perhaps a sinful thoughts or sinful desires, but not always is it sinful. It's just these cravings. In this case, they were describing the food that they were complaining they didn't have now. All they have is this thing called manna. Coriander. Mixed with some, some this color of uh, delum. It was like probably a yellow, probably a pleasant look. And what they were looking for was meat. Give us some meat. Which is a very strange question if you really think about it because consider they had God in heaven that met their every need for a year. And now they're complaining because they don't have exactly what they want. And that's exactly what happens. God will bring you out of slavery, out of bondage, and you will walk for a period of time and until you get to a point, if you're not continuing growing, you will start complaining of what you would like to get back in your life that comes from the old life. You will have cravings and you will fight the flesh and you will fight the things of this world because you feel like you've left out, you've forgotten. You're like selective thinking and selective feelings of what you think was good you want back in your life when God took you out of that and has been providing for you your whole time as a Christian. Israel had to yield to this intense craving. It would not be fulfilled unless they cooperated with it. We see in James chapter 1, verse 14, it says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. See, it's this attraction, this, this desire, the attraction to sin is present within us. 
Yet we must still yield to it in choosing to sin. So you sit there and have it there, but you have a decision. Am I going to yield to that sinful desires, or I'm going to put an end to that and, and follow God and, and bring my flesh under control? It always We always have that decision we have to make. To follow in the spirit or in the flesh, that is always the decision and is always the battle that goes on within a person. But these people were so discontent, they, they were basically looking around for another provider to give them to be satisfied emotionally and physically. We want meat, we want what we want, and they start looking around versus being satisfied with what God has provided for them. And they were so distraught, not getting their way, that they just wept. Like childish disappointments, just as out of control crying to get their way. I mean, tears of repentance. Tears of sorrow over sin and or, or, or joy for the Lord and weeping for the joy of the Lord can be such a beautiful thing before God. But many tears are shed by many people, even by believers, but they're just tears of childish discontentment. Israel could have provided meat for themselves. You ever really think about that? We talk about, oh, God provided manna like they didn't have any food. They had animals with them. They could, have, they could have grown something. They could have killed the animals and had food for them. God did not prohibit them to hunt animals that were in the wilderness. Nor did he say he couldn't have the food of the flocks so that they could slaughter for the meat. They wasn't willing to do anything except just cry out and complain. They didn't want to go do anything about it. They just wanted to complain because they had a complaining heart. The heart wasn't right. They say, we remember, we remember. They describe me how beautiful Egypt must have been. But there was just selective memory. They forgot they were in bondage. Things were not as good as you think it was back in the old life. We have a tendency to do the same thing, do we not? Israel fell in love with an uh, this kind of an illusion from the past. Instead of looking of what God had for them in the future, the promised land. Which was truly the land of milk and honey. All the great food that they could ever want was ahead of them, provided for them. They just had to be patient and content and wait for God to bring them into the promised land and give them what he promised them. But no, I want it now. I want it this way. I want the things of the past because everything seemed so much better before I came to a Christian. Remember, God's best is always in front of us. Always ahead of us, never behind us. We're not to ever look back. We're always looking forward as God leads us and promises us with his promises of moving forward. All they could do is 
There's no meat. So you only accept this, this manna. It's all you've got given us is this manna. Complaining it's just manna, manna, manna. It's not exciting enough. It's boring. Look at this. It's all we're going to get. All it is is showing the heart is a heart of lack of gratitude. And that lack of gratitude was nothing less than having despised the Lord. We see that in verse 20 of chapter 11. God is our provider. And to despise what he provides is to despise him. It is not God's job to entertain us. And we should be more than children who demand to be entertained and excited all the time. We are to just trust in the Lord and follow and just receive with gratitude and thankfulness of what he has provided. All they could do is this this complaining heart. They sense the drying up. And that's exactly as a Christian today. The more you complain, the less gratitude and thankfulness, you will dry up spiritually and you will complain more and more and more. And you will spiral out of control. They did the same thing. They even said it. Now our whole being is dried up. Because why? Because the complaining heart romanticizes the past, but it also exaggerates the problems of the present. Have you ever noticed that? The drama always seems more than it really is when you have a complaining heart. You always think everything was better and oh, it was so great in the other place I was at. And it can happen where you you live. Oh, this is a terrible place. The worst place I've ever lived. You can never come to the North Country. It's terrible. It's horrific. Oh, any place is better than here. You know how many times I hear people who say that and then get out of here and go to the next place and wish they had never left? Because that place truly is a bad place. But their complaining heart's going to complain about that place too. Because they're not thankful and, gra- and, and grateful in where God has them at the time. So you're going to always complain. Next t- place, next place, next place. Next job, next job, next job. Every, it's always a complaining heart. It's always going to complain wherever they're at. It's a sign of a, not, a heart that is not right with God. And yes, you will dry up as a Christian. You'll start drying up. And one of the things, boss, part of this little statement that they have here is that it is tastes like, the, this manna tastes like a pastry prepared with oil. Do you know what that definition is to me? A great donut. Is it not? It's a great donut. That's exactly what I said. This is what they're talking about. God provided this beautiful nourishing thing called manna. And it must have been such a savory little donut. It's just as a pastry prepared with oil. What could you have better being in the wilderness than a great donut? Oh, old fashioned. Oh, love it. Verse 10. Now we see the complaint of Moses here. In verse 10, Then Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. Moses also was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you afflicted your servant? God, why are you doing this to me? And why have I found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all these people on me? Oh, the weight is too much. Did I just conceive all these people? Did I birth all these people? 
Did I begot them? Were they part of my family tree here? That you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a guardian carries a nursing child to the land which you swore to their fathers? Am I like their mother? To hear all these complaints going on here and I have to carry them like I put them in. I birthed all these people? You gave them to me. I didn't ask for them. Verse 13, where am I to get meat to give to all these people? He's automatically sitting there. I'm going to please the people, appease these people to get them to stop complaining. It's always a challenge of a leader of, uh, of, of, of people. If you're not careful, people complaining, you feel like you always have to feel like you have to satisfy them with what they're complaining about. That's a danger. For they weep all over me, <laughs> saying, give, me, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to bear all these people alone. Because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, please kill me here and now. Oh, such drama. If I have found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness. Woo! Moses go off on the deep end here. Talk about emotional. He's overwhelmed as a leader, trying to manage and lead over two million people. Oh, and the complaining, his favoritism, percentage of favoritism must be in the low 20s by now. He's not polling very well among the, among the tribes. And so what does he do? Oh, let me figure out how am I going to get the meat to him? He's going to try to satisfy him to get his popularity maybe back, back up. And all he's doing is that the anger of the, anger of the Lord was so greatly aroused, it even absolutely displeased Moses. It's this childish weeping. In the, the language, the, the original language is, is not just weeping, but rebellion. The people were rebelling now in the camp. This mixed multitude, the Israelites absolutely rebelling of the people not only angered the Lord it displeased Moses as well and the frustration drove him in this frustration to God God you gave me these people why are they complaining why are they like this this intense craving that the children of Israel had in this mixed multitudes and their complaining heart, it was just not good. It completely shows their lapse of trust in God. That's what a complaining heart shows. Moses seems caught off guard or surprised by the people's rebellious hearts here, complaining hearts. And then he shows that frustration to God. And he comes to God and just frustrates. And he says, I can't take it anymore. They're weeping all over me. They're just crying and crying and rebelling. And they're just doing all these things. Just, God, I can't take it. Just take my life. Kill me here and now. The overdrama, The overreaction of a leader who is not coming back to remind the people of God and what he has done. He's overwhelmed by these rebellious people and he goes to God instead of 
calming his heart down and not to worry and not be anxious and just just praise God and knowing what God has done in and through their lives this past year and what he's taken him to and just settling his heart, he just starts getting wrapped up with the rest of the people and start complaining to God about the situation at hand. That wasn't a wise choice of Moses. Why have you afflicted your servant? Why have you allowed this trial in my life, God? Here I am serving you, God. I'm being faithful, God. And now this trial's in my life. The complaining is going on. The people are rebelling. What's, what have I done? What are you doing to me here? But he has to remember, God did not bring this upon Moses. It wasn't God who did this. These were these carnal, ungrateful people who were living in and among the people here. Yet God did not directly afflict Moses with this, but he ultimately allowed this in his life. And God allowed this for the same reason God allows any affliction in our life. If he allows this affliction of any kind of affliction or trial or tribulation in our lives, it is for to compel us to trust him all the more with your life. To partner with him in overcoming obstacles and situations and challenges in your life, God allows it so that it will compel us to come and run to him. Not complain to him, but to run to him, to the love and then praise him all the more through this increased dependence upon him through these dark valleys we find ourselves in. And when you do that, you see the great deliverance he brings in your life. 1 Thessalonians 3.3 3, Not that, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. Lord, you've allowed this to happen in my life. It's not something I asked for. I know you wouldn't give it to me. You just allowed it because of the people around me have complaining hearts, rebellious hearts, carnal hearts, unthankful hearts, on and on. I'm going, to, I'm going to face tribulations and trials, and you've allowed it to touch my life, but this is going to draw me closer and closer to you. I know it's, it's very difficult when we find ourselves in these very hard places in the midst of affliction. We many times can feel like Moses did. Why have I found favor? Why have I not found favor in your sight? If you really love me, Lord, why would you bring all this upon me? Why would you allow this to happen? But God's response is the same every single time. It's because I do love you. I do love you. That I am training you up. I am building up the faith in you for great things. Moses, you know, had this little te temper tantrum. They weep all over me like some babies. They're just weeping. They're just in emotional, in out of control people. And they're like babies. What am I going to do with these people? 
I didn't bear them. I didn't birth them. I didn't do it. You just told me these are the people you want me to lead. And God's saying, Moses, I appointed you as leader because I can work through and in your life to lead these people and help them move and grow in the relationship with me. That's why you're there. You can't bear it on your own as a leader. You can't do it all. You can't change the attitude. God is going to do it in and through Moses to help them. But that didn't stop Moses from coming to a point of saying, just kill me here. I've had enough. That is not the right prayer Moses should have had with God. Isn't it thankful that, he, that God didn't answer Moses' prayer at this moment? Oh, you want to die? Okay, you want me, I'll answer that question for you. Boom, you're gone. How many times we've said things to God, are you not thankful that God didn't answer that prayer? And then, when he, and then he didn't answer the prayer when he said at the very end, do not let me see my wretchedness. This prayer God would not answer because God wanted Moses to see his wretchedness, his inability to fix this problem. Apart from the mighty hand of God, God wanted to say, I want you to see it clearly that you can do nothing apart from me. And when Moses sees his wretchedness, his weaknesses, his shortcomings, then he can be strong in God's strength because he knows that he's partnering with God and God is on his side and it's God's strength that's going to make him perfect in weakness. We see in 2 Corinthians 12.9. Verse 16, So the Lord said to Moses, Gather me 70 men of the elders of Israel whom you know to be the elders of the people and the officers over them. Bring them to the tabernacle, meaning that they may stand there with you. Then I will come down and talk with you there and I will take up the spirit that is upon you and will put the same upon them and they shall bear the burden of the people with you that you may not bear it yourself alone. What a beautiful moment where God takes this leader, Moses. He says, I can't bear this on my own. He says, great, I'm going to bring 70 elders. I'm going to bring these elders, these godly men who are already serving in a way of capacity of leading as elders for the people. Bring those 70 here, and I'm going to take the spirit of me that's been upon you to lead these people. I'm going to take that same spirit and place it on them, and they're going to be right there alongside you to serve and take care of the people. Moses was not to pick these men. He thought might become elders. I'm going to say, oh, that looks like he might be a good elder. He might look like a good elder. No, he was to pick the men who were already known as elders or shows the fact that they had wisdom of God. They had their conduct in line with God. Their ministering to others was a natural thing that God had been doing in and through their lives. He was to pick those men. This wasn't supposed to be a mystery who was to be an elder or not. They were already had a desire. God was already working through their life. And the, Moses could just see it in their lives that they were people that God was working through as elders. Elders are made by God, but recognized by Moses. 
And the very first call of the elders was simply to be there with Moses before the Lord. And they were to support and strengthen Moses just, as, just by their presence and being along his side. And the elders must have that same heart. The same vision. The same spirit that was on Moses was to be on them and they were to be a oneness and unity. And if there's not, there would be no agreement among the leaders of the nation and it would cause a disaster, disastrous result. And it's so true in the church today. That God brings men alongside to help me and encourage and be there to work and minister to the people. But we have to be one accord. We must have the same vision. We must have the same heart. We have to have the same spirit. All doing what God's called us to do here. And with that unity, it helps move the people in the right direction. And not disastrous division. The elders were there to help Moses carry the spiritual load. To help him carry for and minister to the people. To be a support for him in the ministry. God's help was going to come to Moses as Moses had prayed. But it would be through the support of godly men. And that's exactly how God does it even today. Verse 18, then you shall say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. You shall eat meat for you have wept in the hearing of the Lord saying, who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord gave you will give you meat and you shall eat and you shall eat not one day, not two days, not five days, not 10 days, not 20 days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have despised the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we ever come out of Egypt? Why did you ever save us from the world? Woo! This is a mighty, 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 mighty thing here. God says, oh really? You want meat? Okay, I'm going to give you so much meat, you're going to gorge on it, and it's going to become absolutely vile to you. It's going to, you're, going to, it's going to, you're going to throw, it's going to come out of your nostrils when you're over the, the porcelain thing here around some hole, and then you're throwing up. It's even going to come out of your nostrils. It'll be so much. <laughs> be careful what you ask for. You might actually get more than you asked, more than what you thought would be, and becomes actually loathsome. It was a way that the Lord was going to chasten the people by giving them exactly what they want. And a lot of it. So much that they would become sicked to their stomach. Why? Because they denied and doubted the goodness of God's deliverance. It's dangerous for a Christian to entertain the thought. I wish I had never decided to follow Jesus. I had it so much better in, my, in the world. 
It's those kinds of thoughts. If they come, must be put away immediately. You must bring that thought under captivity quickly. We can never deny or doubt the goodness of God's deliverance of saving you and bringing you out of the old life into the new life. Verse 21, And Moses said, The people whom I am among you are 600,000 men on foot, yet you have said I will give them meat and that they may eat for a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to provide enough for them? They're starting to question that. Wait a minute. How are you going to provide a whole month worth of volume of meat for every day for a month for over 2 million people? Think about the logistics of that. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to provide enough of them? They're starting to ask the question, how is this going to happen? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to provide enough of them? And the Lord said to Moses, has the Lord's arm been shortened? Is my, my, my arm incapable and not enough power, enough ability to do what? I created the heavens and the earth. Are you kidding me? Am I too short to reach out and take care of the situation at hand is what he's saying? Now you shall see whether what I say will happen to you or not. <laughs> like, oh, can you imagine that conversation right there, right? So what happens, verse 24, So Moses went out and told the people of the words of the Lord, and he gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tabernacle. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took of the Spirit that was upon him and placed the same upon the 70 elders. And it happened when the Spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so again. But two men had remained in the camp. Two men. The, man, the name of one was Eldad, and the, other, uh, and the name of the other was Medab. And the Spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those listed, but who had not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they, yet they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses and said, Ildad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, good old assistant here to Moses, one of his choice men answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Stop them from doing that. What are they doing? They're not doing it the way we're supposed to do it. And what is that? What 29? Then Moses said to him, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were, pro, were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. Here's what a great situation. It's exactly what happened. Seventy, those choice men were gathered. The God came down to put the spirit upon them. Two of the dudes were in the camp. Why did they didn't come? They maybe didn't hear the call. Maybe they thought it was going to be at another time. They were about an hour late. Maybe they're always late coming. Whatever it is, those two people were selected to be there. Even though they weren't there, God still anointed them with his spirit in the camp. And then you have this situation. Hey, this young man says to Joshua and to Moses, hey, can you see what happened? They're not doing what God's, the way it's all supposed to, they're all supposed to be here. And Moses said, wait a minute. God anointed them. Oh, if everyone would be prophesied, if everyone was spiritually anointed, everyone was doing what God, you think I'm going to mess around with what God has done here? This is still good. 
Joshua's just being a protective assistant pastor. Oh, they're not doing it. No, if God's working in and through their life, who are we to stop that? And Moses went back to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. And then finally, now the wind, a wind went out from the Lord and it brought quail from the sea and left them fluttering near the camp. But a day's journey on this side and about a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp and about two cubits, which is about three feet above the ground, above the surface of the ground, the people stayed up all that day, all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. He was gathered, at least gathered at least 10 homers or 65 bushels of of what they were gathering, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth, can you picture it? Still between their teeth, before it was chewed, they didn't even get to partake of it. The wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. So it so he called the name of that place Kibroth Hatava, because there they burned the people who had yielded to craving from Kibroth Hatava. The people moved to Hazaroth and camped at Hazaroth. So here, miraculously, God directed a huge number of quail to camp of Israel where they were killing and were able to were supposed to be eating this quail. The, back in this in this area, quail was a migration. It was a bird that migrated across the Sinai wilderness every year. And it has been recorded that the Arabs living near that region could catch between one to two million quails during their autumn migration with nets. So you can see that God used this, this migration. The quail came across the camp about three feet above and they were just catching them, right? They didn't have to bend down to get it. God had actually provided the meat necessary for a whole month's worth. But notice that while they were just before, they could just put it in their teeth to chew it and partake of it and fulfill that craving, that fleshly craving they had. The Lord sent a plague, and many died. Psalm 78, verses 27 through 31. He also rained meat on them like the dust, featured fowl like the sand of the seas, and he let them fall in the midst of their camp, all around their dwellings, so that they ate and were filled. For he gave them their own desire. They were not deprived of their craving, but while their food was still in their mouths, the wrath of God came against them and slew the stoutest of them and struck down the choice men of Israel. Psalm 106 Verses 13 through 15, they soon forgot their works and they did not wait for the, his counsel, but lust exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. Be very careful, my brothers and sisters, that you don't lust after cravings of your flesh. You just might get it. And it may result in a very bad situation of your life. God could allow that to happen in your life to bring about 
a discipline that you and I do not want to have. It just why would you even lust after the flesh or have the pride of life? Lust of the eyes. None of that. We, when we allow ungodly cravings to rule our lives, God may send what we crave and leanness will come into your soul as well. This was a very strict judgment. But it was a help to Israel because it taught them to not be ruled by their cravings. Then it was a huge help to the nation because it pro- the promised land people must be ruled by more than their physical and emotion, emotional appetites. They must be ruled by the Spirit of God in their lives. And you notice here that the name of the place is Kibroth Hatava, which means graves of lusts and craving. How many have had their cravings be their grave. It brings the death of them. Spiritually, physically, emotionally. A spiritual death because they yielded to their cravings and never found victory over their lusts. God will discipline to try to bring his children back to fully trust in him and not have that complaining heart. 